You're tuned in to Holy Smokes, Cigars Catholicism, and Conversation. Let my prayer arise and thy sight is incense. I'm your host, Dustin Quick, and this is episode 6. Tonight's episode is titled simply, What is the Church? Before we dive in, I just again want to do, um, as I do for every episode, a plug for Havana Palace on Huron Church Road in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Best service, finest cigars, go see Caesar and Eli. They'll hook you up and just tell, uh, tell them that you heard about Havana Palace from this podcast. All right, so last episode, we, Rachel Fulton Brown and I, discussed Mary as stumbling block, and we took a little journey through uh, temple theology through a Marian lens, and we will be doing that in greater depth in a coming episode um, for part two of that conversation. But shifting gears a little bit, um, tonight is just going to be myself. I have no guest. Just me, myself, and I. And we're going to deal with a subject that, I mean, you, you really can't under, un, underestimate the importance of the question, what is the church? I mean, after all, um, you look at Christianity today, you look at, you survey uh, church history and you just see how many factions, how many sects, how many denominations, how many breakoffs and schisms and heresies there have been. And even today, if one wants to become a Christian, um, it's like a buffet. You, you know, you get in line and you just see there's so many options, you could almost gorge yourself. Um, and it's just, it's not, it's not healthy. And that's not the fault of the seeker. It's the fault of fallen human beings. Because anytime you put fallen human beings in a position of authority, whether it's secular or divine, they're going to make mistakes. But fortunately, the church is no mere human institution. She has Christ's divine promise of protection that, as our Lord told St. Peter in Matthew 16, that the gates would not prevail, the gates of Hades, the underworld hell, excuse me, would not prevail against the church, and that Christ promised that he would be with us until the end of the age. The end of the age being the Messianic age. Well, the Messianic age is eternal. The age of Christ is eternal. Um, but speaking, you know, here of his his visible body on earth, that she will endure and she will always be a sign of Christ's presence in and to the world. But the fact remains, whether you're a Christian or not, You might be asking yourself, well, how in the world can I be convinced that Christianity is true when you have all these competing groups claiming to be led by the same Holy Spirit who is supposed to lead believers into all truth when churches on the same block claiming to be led by the Holy Spirit claiming authority from the scriptures, which is God, you know, his inspired word that he left us, shouldn't the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the Bible be sufficient for infallible authority? That those on the outside of the church should be able to look to her and say, this is what Although Christ is no longer physically with us as he was the apostles, we can look to the church and know that this is what Christ desires for us. This is his will for his people. This is how he abides with us. This is how he teaches us what we need to know. 
regardless of the age that we're in. And these are the things that he has given us to increase our holiness unto salvation and eternal life. Ideally, I mean, yeah, that's that's the picture, right? That's the ideal. And I, as a Catholic, believe that he has done, our Lord has done just that. So, before we kind of touch on the subject of what the church is, let's ask, let's ask or delve into what the church is not. See, so many people in this contemporary culture So many, so many, sorry about that. So many people in this contemporary culture um, treat church as not essential. At best, it's a place where you could enjoy community with other like-minded believers. You could worship God. You can sing songs and hymns and just be edified. You know, hear, hear the scriptures expounded upon. That's... I mean, if you're a sort of a faithful, normative Protestant Christian, that might be your your outlet, right? Or your outlook is that, yes, this is important, but is it really absolutely essential to your salvation? Most Protestants... I mean, uh, you know, again, depending on, it's so diverse and so broad, but most, most Protestants, evangelicals today would probably say no. And at worst, you have even the, the, some that espouse the perspective that, well, I don't even need to go to church at all, or church is even, is bad. Church is not what God desires. He just desires you to be alone with the Bible and be led by the Spirit. But if we look at Christianity historically, neither perspective has been the constant teaching of the church and the tradition of the church from, well, from the New Testament until the present day. So, First of all, what is the church? And why does it exist? Well, before we start talking about the church, let's just be reminded of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus Christ come? First of all, what is the nature of Christ? See, because if we can if we can always if we want to kind of dissect what church is and isn't, and what its purpose is. In order for us to do that effectively, we have to go back to the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ, and we have to ask, why did Christ come? What is Christ's nature? And by extension, because the church is the body of Christ, the church will actually be an extension of Christ's own nature and will accomplish what Christ sets out to accomplish. So that's the first important link that we need to sort of cement, cement down as a foundation. So Christ, why did he come? He didn't come simply to forgive our sins. That's, of course, forgiveness is, uh, every one of us is guilty before God. There's no doubt about that. We're not perfect. We need forgiveness. But it's much more than that. See, it's not simply a forensic, legal, external 
declaration that you've been forgiven, but you're not interiorly changed or transformed. Christ came, the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Logos, assumed a created human nature in Jesus. The Logos, God, took on a human nature so that we might put on the divine nature. So Christ came in the language of the fathers to make us gods. God became man so that man might become God or gods. The difference is Christ is God by nature, whereas we're creatures by nature. So when we become the term becoming God or God-like, you hear deification, we become deified. You hear the term theosis, which is a Greek term. You hear St. Peter in his epistle talking about becoming partakers of the divine nature. These are all the same reality. Right? So Christ came to make us partakers of the divine nature, to deify us. And the great thing is that even though we, at the end of all things, I mean, eternal life starts now. When we're grafted into the body of Christ, we're partaking of divine life and becoming gods now, here and now. But the finalization and the full fulfillment of what that looks like for us to be deified will happen at the resurrection, but the process starts now, you see. So Christ came to deify us so that we participate in divine nature, but rather than destroy our human nature with divine nature, it makes our human nature even more pronounced, beautiful, and glorious. So rather than being annihilated by the divine nature and the divine nature being the only thing left, the divine nature and the human natures coexist in, in one person, in our person. And this is a reflection of Christ himself who is fully God and fully man and the natures don't mix and one does not overtake the other, but both shine forth fully. So that's what Christ does to the individual. Makes them participants in the divine nature, makes them gods, make them, makes them God. By grace, again, not by nature, because we're not God by nature, but we become God by grace, by participating in the life of God. And... We can only do that through the one Savior and the one Mediator, Jesus Christ, and Him alone. He makes that possible. So the question becomes, if that's the destiny and purpose of man, which has become wrought for us in the person of Jesus Christ, the question becomes, well, how does he do that? What is the normative means, that the, the objective means, the objective reality, that Christ has, le has left us so that we can become deified. Is there a way to know what that is? I mean, hypothetically, God could do anything, right? So, I mean, he could just deify us through some extrinsic means like God just speaking to you, entering you and speaking through you, and you just boom, you just become transformed in an instant. And he can do this to any individual at any time in any way he pleases. Whether you're, you know, in the woods, somewhere out in the boonies, or in a major metropolitan city. And he just does it kind of at random. Like, kind of like getting struck by lightning. I mean, he could do that. But the question is, did he, did he leave us a, a system, a society a means, an instrument by which we are to become deified? And is that individual? Is it simply subjective? Is it communal? 
Is it simply spiritual and nebulous? Or is it structured? Is it visible? With, uh, and this visible thing, does it have a ethereal spiritual element to it? Well, basically, again, going off of the theme that the church is an extension of Christ, and as we've already said, Christ is two natures, human, visible, and divine, invisible, right? So if the church is the body of Christ, and the body is one with the head and cannot be separated from the head, if the head is both visible and invisible, physical and spiritual, the person of Jesus Christ, then we would expect the body of the head to have that same nature. Visible, physical, and invisible, spiritual. So the church is what Jesus Christ is, and vice versa. They are one thing. And if we're looking at just metaphysical, or well, just metaphysics and logic, I mean, right off the bat, we see that the church is, it's not a non-essential. It's not, it's a non-negotiable. It's indispensable. It's indispensable. It's as crucial as Jesus Christ himself. So with that said, Christ and the church are one thing, united. We get the same theme in scripture. The relationship between Christ and his church are likened to members of a, a body, joint and knit together in the love of the Holy Spirit. There is a image of spousal union to becoming one flesh. So the same, and scripture also says that the church is the pillar and foundation of all truth. So if Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and Christ and the church are quote-unquote one thing, because of their intimate, inseparable union, then it makes sense. You would see why scripture would say the church is the foundation of the truth. And at the same time, Christ the head can say he is the truth. And what applies to the head, Christ, applies to the body, the church, being the pillar and ground of truth. So, the scriptural witness, along with metaphysical principles of Christ being incarnate, having two natures, visible and invisible, physical and spiritual, would apply to the church being both visible, physical, and invisible, spiritual. And this is why, from the earliest days of the church, Church fathers have said there is no salvation outside of the church. Because they weren't speaking of, you know, there's all these churches, you just kind of better hope you pick the right one, and you would be saved in that particular one. No, they understood that because metaphysically there can only be one body because there's only one head, if you're going to be incorporated into Christ, the body of Christ, you're going to be incorporated into the church because there's no separation between Christ and the church. So, okay, that all sounds fair. So could we not just say that as long as one has faith in the head, Jesus Christ, one is automatically 
adopted into the family of God as a child of God, united to all believers, past, present, and future, in the Holy Spirit as part of the body of Christ, automatically. So they are part of the one church. And despite the fact that there's all these churches and denominations standing side by side, this reality of the one sort of invisible nebulous church trumps them all so that regardless of their differences, they're still at their core part of this one invisible collective of believers, past, present, and future. I mean, it sounds reasonable because, you know, many people have that view that, well, as long as I believe in Jesus, um, I'm automatically part of the church and the church is invisible. It's spiritual. It's not physical. So I'm good. I'm part of Christ's church. That's a popular sentiment. But if we're looking at scripture, it's very clear that there are things that engraft one into the body of Christ. And this chief means is baptism. When Christ gave his apostles the Great Commission, he said, Go out unto all the world and baptize all the nation, nations and teach them everything that I have commanded you. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism, right, is, is the principal means, ordinary means, explicit means by which we enter into the church. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. When St. Peter is giving the Pentecost sermon, he's preaching, and then the people say, it's scripture says they're cut to the heart and they say, what must, what must we do to be saved? And St. Peter responds, repent and be baptized. This promise is for you and your household. And as St. Paul notes, baptism identifies us with the death and resurrection of Christ, because when we either are immersed into the water or the water is sprinkled or poured, we enter into Christ's death at that moment. We join ourselves with him. And when we rise from the baptismal font, we put on the garments of Christ. As St. Paul tells the Galatians, put on Christ Jesus. Right? When, we, when we come out from the baptismal font, we have a new nature. We have an angelic nature. That's why, you know, that's the symbolism of wearing the white garment. It's the glory of Christ. The prelapsarian Adam. Right? So, it's baptism. Baptism is like the gateway into the life of Christ. Because that's what salvation is. Like I said, you know, partaking of the divine nature. Another way to say it is that through you and through the church at large, Christ is living his life in and through his people. So, okay, sounds good so far. I mean, the church, so then, okay, at first it was anyone who has faith in Jesus, right, this part of the church, which is invisible. But we see baptism kind of shatters that a little bit because it says there's something that you must do that Christ himself commanded 
and that was carried, carried out by the apostles from day one on his explicit express instruction to be baptized. And baptism is what makes you a member of the church. So, okay, maybe it's just baptism then. Maybe it's, maybe it's faith in Christ and baptism. But after that, you're part of the church, right? I mean, so it doesn't matter what denomination you are. If you've been baptized, you're part of the church, you're good to go. But the question is, does it stop there? Does the New Testament and do the successors of the apostles, do they, do they go further? Does it stop with baptism? Or is baptism an entry? Sort of the front door, if you will, into the mansion that the Father has prepared for us in Christ. Well, we find in the New Testament that, indeed, it doesn't just stop and start with baptism, as crucial as baptism is, of course. We have the laying on of hands. We also see that which is practiced and has been practiced for the last two millennia in the Eastern Christian world as chrismation, the anointing with holy oil and laying on of hands to receive the plenitude of the Holy Spirit. And in the Latin West, it's been confirmation. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit and given strength to sort of unlock what the Holy Spirit has given given you and done for you in baptism. Now you are strengthened to carry out that mission, participating in Christ as in his role as priest, prophet, and king to go out and do what he's done. But remember, Christ says, greater works will you do than I have done after I'm gone. So there's the laying on of hands anointing with holy oil. And then there's another biggie, which there's been, I mean, within Protestants, since the Protestant Reformation, there's been so much squabbling over the nature of the, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, however you want to phrase it. Even if you take the view that the Eucharist is a mere symbol and a sort of remem remembrance of what Christ has done, the sacrifice that he offered on Calvary. As you eat a piece of wafer and drink grape juice or wine, you, you recall that ev event mentally. And then inspired by that, you go out and try to live a life in, in imitation of Christ. Even if you have that view of the Eucharist, it is undeniable that it is of utmost importance. Because just like baptism, we have an express command to do what Christ has said to be done, as he himself did. When he was, up, when he was in the upper room with his apostles, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, did the same with the wine, said, this is my body given up for you for the remission of sins, and the same with the wine. This is my excuse me, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. Right? So, and and St. Paul says in, a, in one of his letters that this, this act, he's received from the Lord as tradition. Now he's handing it on to his, to his communities. And he's saying, this is to be done in perpetuity until the Lord comes again in glory, his second coming. So baptism and the Eucharist are huge. I mean, the Eucharist, you know, he says, this is how the world is going to know that you are my disciples because you're doing this and you're witnessing to my death and resurrection 
until I actually come again to get you. So this is the way that the world is going to know Christians by the Lord's Supper. This was a defining feature of a Christian in the New Testament. And bear in mind, I'm only speaking of the New Testament right now. So we've covered baptism. We've, and again, when I say covered, I don't mean actually covered. I'm saying I'm just laying out some general principles. So I, I, I'm going to do whole episodes on baptism, on the Eucharist, on confirmation, etc., etc. But I'm just laying out some general principles because it's it's all tied to the question of what is the church, what is the nature of the church. Right? And so, the Eucharist is there. Confirmation is there. Baptism is there. Um, you have this the importance of the sacrament of marriage, where, you know, the... The, the, the Jewish leaders were arguing with Jesus and said, well, Moses gave us, allowed us a certificate of divorce. But Christ says, from the, that's because of, of the hardness of your hearts you were granted a concession because you were weak. But Christ said from the beginning it was not so, for it is the will of God that man should leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Christ was speaking um to the permanence of marriage, and the Apostle Paul did so in imitation of him. Marriage is a permanent institution enshrined by the divine, and Christian marriage, sacramental marriage, marriage that allows a couple to share and grow in the life of Christ, is one of the sacraments of the church. So the permanence of marriage and marriage is being a sign of Christ's love for his church and ways that spouses can, through living with each other, become sanctified and more Christ-like, Christ-like, excuse me, is the purpose of marriage. So it too has a divine end and it's enshrined in scripture. We have the anointing of the sick, another one of the seven sacraments. In James, where it says, is anyone among you sick? Let him come to the elders of the church and be anointed and prayed over that he may be healed because the prayer of a righteous man Availeth, availeth much. It has much efficacy. Right, so, and we also have the, the forgiveness of sins. You know, people often think it's strange that people would go to a priest to ask for forgiveness, isn't that, isn't that slandering or blaspheming the work of Christ? I mean, isn't Christ the only one who can forgive sins? The answer is yes, of course. Because God is the only one who can make you like himself. Forgiveness is a part of that. Right? To have a, to have a clean slate to have your soul washed so that you could begin again. This is also in scripture. See, I'm starting there because I want to show that the principles that Catholics believe about the church, they don't, they weren't invented. They weren't imperial, medieval, superstitious inventions, but the principles themselves come right out of holy, divine scripture. The forgiveness of sins in the context of the sacrament of confession 
Well, we see this in John 20, right? The risen Christ. It says of Christ and his disciples that he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven, and whosoever sins you retain are retained. So the apostles are given authority by Christ to act in his name. In his, because again, who, who is the one who can forgive sins? God alone, right? That, that's, that's in Mark. People, you know, people were, were going crazy because Christ said he forgave a man of his sins, the paralytic. And the Pharisees were saying, well, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's exactly the point. So when Christ says to his disciples, you can retain and remit sin, it's not saying that, oh, the Apostle John and his own authority can forgive sins, because no, that, that can't be. But if John is acting in his apostolic capacity and authority by Christ, acting essentially as Christ, then yes, he or the person of Christ in and through John can indeed forgive sins because it's the same Christ forgiving the sin. So I'm just trying to just lay out some, some general principles, right? So we have baptism, we have the Eucharist, we have confirmation, we have confession, we have the anointing of the sick, and we have marriage. Those are the seven sacraments of the church. So, again, in a general sense, what is the church? What is the purpose of the church? It is the extension of Christ's incarnate presence on earth through which he teaches, forgives, and makes holy. And why? Because if there's one head, and the head himself is visible and invisible, there can only be one body, the body's going to be visible and invisible like the head. And in order for the head to transform the world into himself, into divine glory, without losing its creatureliness, he's going to do, do so through the instrumentality of his body, the church. And how does he do these things? Well, how does he do this thing? Make creation holy? And again, bear in mind that man and woman they're connected to the whole of creation because they are many universes. They are microcosms. They have all of creation, the whole entire universe summed up within themselves. So if man is made holy, woman is made holy, by extension, they will pull creation up with them. What is done within them will spill out and the whole of creation will redound with the glory of God to the praise of the Father in and through Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is. That's why she exists. Christ came to make us divine, and he does so in and through the instrument of his one body, because he is one head, the church. When you have this view of God, 
the nature of man and man's vocation as becoming God, then you will see that asking the question of is church important, it becomes a non-issue, it becomes a given. So the question becomes, and this is the result of our own sinfulness throughout history and in the present day, I mean, ideally we shouldn't have to ask which church, because if we want to find which church, we have to find the one that has all these marks all the means that Christ has given us to make us what he wants us to be. If that church does not have the objective means to make us God in Christ, then that church does not possess the fullness of faith, of the Christian faith. It doesn't mean that they can't have elements of truth and sanctification, but I'm talking about, is there a way to possibly discern which, if any, church, if it even exists anymore, which, which has these? But here's, I'll make it a little bit easier. At least one has to. Why? Because if not, then Christ is a liar. Right? Because Christ said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So if that church doesn't exist anymore, Christ has failed, he lied, Christ is not who he claimed to be, he's not God, because God can't and doesn't lie. So we know that because Christ is God and he keeps his promises and he's no weakling, that come hell or high water, no pun intended, Christ has, does, and will preserve his one church. So the question becomes, which church is it? Where is it? How do I know where it is? How do I find it? Well, you have to, again, the principles and means of grace that Christ gives the world through the church, ask yourself, which church in which church are all those present in the plenitude? Baptism, chrismation or confirmation, Eucharist, indissolubility of marriage, forgiveness of sins, anointing of the sick. And this is where Things get interesting because we might be tempted to, you see, when we're so used to having dialogues as Christians, it's always, well, show me the Bible, the Bible verse that says X, right? And then the other guy says, well, I see the same passage, but I interpret it this way. So you could have 10, you could hypothetically have 10 people in a room. all seeing the same passage, all discussing the same passage or passages, but literally it's like the, uh, you know, the psychiatrist or psychologist with the ink blot. Everybody sees 10 people in a line. <laughs> they all see radically different things. And this is how Christianity is today. I hate to say it, but it's, it's undoubtedly true, right? I mean, this group over here says baptism really regenerates the soul. Others say it's symbolic. Some say infants shouldn't be baptized because they don't know what's going on. Others say, no, we baptize infants. Some say the Eucharist is actually the, the presence of Jesus under the appearances of bread and wine. Some say, no, it's just a symbol. It's a mere symbol, I should say, that we remember Christ in, but the, the, the bread and wine remain exactly that 
for the bread and grape juice. There's nothing special about them. Um, you know, that kind of thing, right? So there's all these different views. You know, the early church knew where the true church was. It wasn't Bible verses. It wasn't wrangling over scripture. Because bear in mind, the church didn't have a, really a, a settled list of what was canon until like the 380s, 390s. But yet and still, Christians from the first century till the fourth century were some of the greatest heroes, martyrs, scholars, right? They were able to live and practice and theologize in a Christian context without having a complete Bible, as it were. Because for them, it was about apostolic authority. And it really all boils down to that, right? Because, for example, in St. Ignatius's view, St. Ignatius of Antioch was a bishop in Smyrna, and he lived right around the, shortly after the time of, you know, the Apostle John. And he was ordained by the apostles. He knew the apostles. And he was talking about a deviant group that didn't celebrate the Eucharist with the proper elements. He said they used water and bread. And he said these guys were heretics because, first of all, they didn't believe that the bread and the water or wine, if they were comparing themselves to Orthodox Christians, uh, they didn't believe it was the flesh and blood of Christ. It wasn't the real presence of Christ. It was just, you know, a symbol or whatever. Because, see, for the Gnostics, matter, the body, was evil. So Christ couldn't have actually become incarnate as a real human being because spirit, God, cannot touch evil matter, a body. But Ignatius' thing was the bishop, right? Show me your list of bishops, successors of the apostles that can be traced back to the apostles. Produce your list. Here is our list. We have our list. We know what it is from the present day back to the apostles. This is how we know what the holy tradition says and has come down to us as, and you guys will be quickly exposed, not because you can't argue passages of scripture well, I'm sure you can, but you don't have the apostolic pedigree in the succession of bishops. So that's what it was for the early church. And, um, St. Irenaeus, he wrote a tome called Against Heresies, and he had the same line of argumentation against the Gnostics. Here's the list of the bishops of, of, the bishops of Rome. And, you know, the Church of Rome, all churches must agree with her in doctrine. And, you know, people in and around this time, the, the apostolic, the sub-apostolic age, so right after the apostles, people were th saying things about um, the Roman church that um, all churches must agree with her, or that she is the church that presides in charity and the communion of churches. You know, so there was, it was clearly, it wasn't just a loose collection of individuals that administered these sacraments that made the means of, of grace and divine life to make the Christians holy, but it was 
bishops and priests, and by the way, the New, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, for anyone who doesn't know the original language, um, what you often see translations of the New Testament, and it said, you know, presbyter is often translated as elder, but it's actually where we get the English word priest, right? So that's why we have a new covenant priesthood in the church. It's not like the Aaronite priesthood, of course, but it's the priesthood of Melchizedek. But anyways, these successors, these bishops, were the successors of the apostles who got their doctrine and their teaching from the apostles. And they had a priestly authority. And these bishops delegated that authority to simple priests. And they had deacons also assisting them with administering the sacraments. So as early as, you know, again, the New Testament, you have, uh, you have episcopos, you have bishops, you have presbyteros, you have priests, you have, uh, you have the, the deacons in there. So we see the hierarchy already present in the New Testament. And of course we have uh, Jesus's famous commission to St. Peter in Matthew 16 that you are rocking upon this rock I will build my church the gates of hell will not prevail against it and I'll be with you always until the end of the age and Jesus giving the key of authority to Peter it harkens back to Isaiah 22 with Eliakim and Shebna where the one guy stands in the place of the king of Judah in his physical absence but he's given a key on his shoulders which it symbolized the king's own authority but also they were key, there was actual keys to the temple so this was like chief priestly authority in the priest king of Judah's absence so Peter was given this commission and the successors of St. Peter, the bishops of Rome, sat in his place and, and due to this day, right down to the Holy Father, Pope Francis, who I believe, if I'm not mistaken, if memory serves me correct, is the 266th Bishop of Rome after St. Peter, who was the first. Why is Peter the Bishop of Rome? He was in Antioch and other places. So people say, why is he the Bishop of Rome? Well, because where the Bishop of Rome dies, that's where the central seat of authority is, right? So, although he was in, uh, Syria, he was in Syria, he was in Rome, he did travel to Rome, it's where he died, became the central seat of authority of the church. So if it was, uh, if he died in Jerusalem, it would have been Jerusalem. If he died in Ethiopia, it would have been Ethiopia, but it happened to be Rome. Um, so that was the basic, you know, basic structure of the church is you had the, the chief overseer uh, who had a priestly, uh, priestly role um, in, in the king of Judah's absence. And of course, Jesus is the great king, the Lion of Judah, and he gave Peter the keys to his temple in his physical absence as the chief priest and the sign of unity in the church, and the Church of Rome presides over all the other local churches and charity. And in the great communion of churches, you have, you know, bishops over several dioceses who delegate their authority to priests, and you have deacons as well with uh, the sacrament of holy orders that assists the priests and bishops in the sacred liturgy. So that's been the structure of the church since time immemorial. And it would only make sense, I mean, if you think about it, God's people, Israel, when they worship God in the temple, 
yes, there, there were spiritual realities, of course, taking place. But that didn't negate the physical, visible manifestations of those spiritual realities. And the same is true for the church, for the reasons that I've mentioned. So ask yourself, which church has those characteristics today? From the Creed, we know that whether it's the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, we know that the church is one. The church is holy. The church is Catholic, universal, and apostolic, having apostolic authority. And if you have apostolic authority, you can celebrate the sacraments and be the means through which grace and divine life is applied from Christ to the faithful to make them partakers of the divine nature. So the mission of God himself, God incarnate himself, Christ, is inextricably bound up with the mission of the church, which is inextricably bound up to the mission of man and the destiny of man and the destiny of man is inextricably bound up and linked connected to the ultimate end of the cosmos the whole creation which is its glorification and with that I think I'm going to end here. Again, these were just some general principles outlining the nature, purpose, structure of the church, whether it's essential or not. Does it still does it still exist to this day? and how to find it. So I guess in closing, if you were to ask me, okay, well, you know what? I love Christ. I have a faithful relationship to him. I read my Bible. I try to, you know, by his grace, live a good life. What else could I possibly need? What do I need a church for? And what do I, more than that, what do I need the church for? I would respond simply by saying or asking, since you love Christ, number one, wouldn't you want to do his will unreservedly? heroically and passionately. Number two, do you think in struggling to do his will that he would disappoint you in any way? And three, because, because God is good all the time, are you not confident that in doing his will, in coming into full communion with his one visible body, would you not be confident that you would receive all that you could ever ask or think or imagine in this life and unto eternity because you've been given access to the full means of all those things that Christ wants to use, that through them you would fulfill to your, in the fullest extent your potential, your call, your destiny to become God in Christ and a partaker of the divine nature. And if the answer to those questions is in the affirmative, then I would encourage you to seriously examine yourself, examine uh, these questions, and take it up to the Lord in prayer. And if you're truly sincere 
He will make a way for you, and you will be blessed beyond measure. So God bless you. Um, this was episode six of Holy Smokes, Cigars, Catholicism, and Conversation. Let my prayer rise in thy sight. As incense, I will see you again soon. I'm your host, Dustin Quick. And before I go, I'm just going to end in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.